Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, friends. Today on the As a Woman podcast, we are answering your fertility questions that you called in and left on voicemail. These are fantastic questions, and I am so excited to be able to sit down and answer them. I have found over more than a decade in the fertility industry as a fertility physician that there are so many questions that go unanswered, and it is often so hard to find the facts from a source that you can trust. And I'm just so thankful that you all are here and a part of this community where we can all learn together. So before we dive in, we are going to talk about this week's fertility in the news, which is very interesting on egg freezing. I do want to say that if you want to call and leave a question for future episodes, you can call the As a Woman voicemail. So the number is 657-229-3672. Again, 657-229-3672. So hot off the press for egg freezing. There have been two articles this week, one in the New York Times and one in Fortune, about women being led astray on egg freezing. I don't really think this is the case, but I want to break this down because you may hear this in the news. This is really a summary of an article that was published in Fertility and Sterility. That is our leading journal and the infertility world. And this was actually published in July. So it's just getting some press now, but it was online published in May. And then the print issue was in July. Study is 15 years of autologous oocytal outcomes from a large university-based center. Okay. One thing to note, egg freezing has changed substantially in 15 years. So that's going to be really important to understand as we evaluate this. And then also this is autologous egg donation, meaning you freeze your eggs with the desire to use them again later. So this study is for patients who went at least one egg freezing cycle before December of 2020. The live birth rate was the primary outcome, like for each person who froze their eggs, what was the final rate of having a live birth? And then they looked at secondary outcomes like live birth rate per transfer or what happened in the lab. So there were 543 patients who underwent 800 cycles of egg freezing. There were 436 total transfers. The median age of the first cycle of egg freezing when your eggs was frozen was 38. That is quite old in the world of egg freezing, and this is probably due to when the technology became available. I will use myself as an example. You could not really freeze your eggs when I was the ideal age, which would be under age 35 or 32, 33. The technology was not good enough. Eggs did not survive the freeze thaw very well. So if you are my generation, you didn't have the opportunity to freeze your eggs until you were in your mid to upper 30s anyway. So number one, the age of this study population is high. The medium time between first freezing and then using the eggs was over four years. The median number of eggs that were thawed 
per patient were between 12 to 14. So in general, it was 12 mature eggs. Some people had immature eggs frozen in the study. So more than 61% had at least a transfer. That means there was a large percentage of people who didn't have a transfer. Live birth rates per transfer were 55% and 31%. Okay, those numbers feel really different. That's because 55% were people who had their eggs frozen, later they were thawed, fertilized, grew out to an embryo, and then had genetic testing so that we knew those were euploid embryos. In the group that did not have any genetic testing done, the live birth rate was much lower, 31%, closer to what we would expect for that age. This study ended up saying that the cumulative total live birth rate was about 39%. And this also matches age-related controls in IVF studies. This is an older population. So I think that is really important because if you are 26, 30, 34, these results aren't really replicated to you. So the take-home of this study was that you had a higher rate of live birth if you were either under age 38 when you froze your eggs or you had more than 20 mature eggs frozen. That is really consistent with current counseling. One thing that I see all the time is that somebody will maybe freeze eggs somewhere and they were never counseled on potentially how many eggs they may need to get to a live born baby. And that is really distressing to me because that's what you need to know if you're trying to decide to do the process or potentially how many times should you do the process. That is also why it is so important to understand what your AMH is, what your antral follicle count is, what protocol are you going to use that can give you a higher chance of an outcome, what are there things you can do to improve your egg quality, and are you meeting those goals for egg numbers along the course of the stimulation? And if you are not, are you going to cancel? What are you going to do next? I really hate that some places just use the same protocol all the time. They don't personalize it, and patients sometimes get really poor feedback. So this is a good study. It's really great to understand, and it does give us evidence to support what I tell patients all the time, which if you're over age 38, 38 or older, you really need 20 or more eggs to feel confident that you're going to get a high chance of a live birth or a probable chance of a live birth. If you are younger, you sometimes can get away with having fewer eggs because the quality of the eggs are better. So I really hope that the media is not taking this study and skewing it into these terrible scare tactics or things that make people feel like egg freezing is not worth it. Here is the title from Fortune. Women have been led astray on egg freezing, bombshell study finds. There are two major things they need to know. I don't think women have been led astray at all. When I've counseled patients, I always say, this is not an insurance policy on your future, right? An insurance policy is always going to pay off if the bad thing happens. This is an investment, investing in the stock market, right? And so if you're making an investment in your fertility, you're putting your resources behind a potential outcome. But the result of that is going to depend on so many factors when you remove that money from the market or when you go to use your eggs. Remember also, egg freezing was experimental until 2012. This study 
says it looks at 15 years, but it was experimental for more than half of that time, right? Because it cuts people off in 2020. So this is really important just to put in context. This study includes older technology with freezing. This study also includes a very aged population that is older than the average person who is freezing their eggs. Do we freeze eggs at age 38 and higher? Yes. Do we recommend that you do multiple cycles to get there? Absolutely. All right, well, let's dive into answering some of your questions from the voicemail. Here we go. Hi, Dr. Crawford. Thanks so much for taking these questions. I recently got diagnosed um, via HSG with either a bifornicated uterus or a septum in my uterus. And I'm looking to have that removed via surgery. And I'm just wondering if I should stick with a regular OBGYN. Um, I go to great OBGYNs that are through a medical college. Uh, So I think they're definitely on the upper tier of OBGYNs in terms of surgery. But I'm wondering if I should stick with them or seek out a reproductive endocrinologist to do the surgery instead. Thanks so much. And I look forward to tuning into your podcast every week. All right. Well, this is a really great question. And so the first thing to say is that an HSG is an x-ray test where we put a speculum inside the vagina and then we inject a little bit of dye and we take x-ray pictures while we watch. The test is meant to show us the inside of the uterus and the fallopian tubes. The inside of the uterus for a bicornuate uterus or a uterine septum look exactly the same. And so typically this means you're going to need further diagnostic testing before you go to surgery. And that's because we do surgically remove septums, but we do not for a bicornuate uterus. A bicornuate uterus is failure of the two different horns of the uterus to fuse together. So if you can imagine, the uterus starts in two separate little pieces of tissue. We call them buds. Each bud will eventually become half of the reproductive tract, including the upper one-third of the vagina, the cervix, the entire uterus, and a fallopian tube. These two buds grow and elongate, they fuse together, and then the midline portion reabsorbs. A uterine septum is failure of complete reabsorption of the midline portion. So you have an avascular piece of tissue, but on the outside, the uterus looks perfectly normal. This tissue can cause miscarriage, And up to 80% of pregnancies with a uterine septum will result in miscarriage. That is recommended for removal with hysteroscopy, where you put a camera in through the cervix and you take out the septum. I think it's up to your OBGYN's comfort. I have met some who feel really great with this. I have met others who do not. Most of the time, it is fertility doctors who are taking these out because we're really working hard to prevent scar tissue from forming after. So if your OB feels comfortable and that may be the case in your area, that would be my number one question. What are we going to do afterward to prevent scar tissue from forming? Secondarily, if it is a bicornuate uterus, that is failure of the two pieces to fuse together correctly. And therefore, you can't have complete reabsorption of the midline portion. This is often referred to as a true heart-shaped uterus, even on the outside of the uterus. But because there's no avascular septum, if they just fail to fuse together, you do get good muscularity throughout the entire uterus and you do not need surgical removal 
because there's nothing really to cut. Everything would be very vascular and you would actually just cut a hole in the uterus. They are associated with some pregnancy complications such as preterm birth, higher risk of C-section. That's because of a breech baby, but not particularly associated with miscarriage. So number one, I would want further testing like a saline sonogram, a 3D ultrasound, or an MRI to know exactly what we have. And if it is a septum, if your OB feels comfortable, I think that's appropriate. I just would ask post-operative management so you can feel good with the overall plan. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. My closet has a tendency to get chaotic and crammed with a bunch of clothes that I don't really want to wear. What's been a game changer for me has been upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince. Now I have a wardrobe full of luxury and classic essentials and I stayed on budget. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they do this by partnering directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman and passing the savings on to us. In addition, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing and premium products and finishes. I personally am loving the linen pieces as it's Texas and summer is upon us. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com A-A-W. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Caraway. Spring is coming and I always love a good home reset. Non-toxic cookware is the perfect way for you to kick off your own spring cleaning. With so many collections to explore, there is a caraway for every cook. Their internet famous kitchenware is a staple for any home. It comes with beautiful shades to fit your aesthetic, but most importantly, you're ditching the chemicals. Caraway's non-toxic kitchenware comes a chemical-free ceramic coating so your food can be prepared without any of those hard-to-pronounce chemicals leaching in to your healthy ingredients. Everybody knows that I am a big believer that our environment impacts our body, and that's why I trust Caraway with my cooking. Visit carawayhome.com A-A-W to take advantage of this limited-time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners, so visit carawayhome.com A-A-W or use the code A-A-W at checkout. Caraway non-toxic cookware made modern. Hi, Natalie. I am a new listener to your podcast. I think I've listened to almost every episode now <laughs> in the last two weeks since I started following you. But um, my question is about progesterone, I'm not going to say that right, only birth control and how that's different from a combo pill and just how that like has differences. I listened to like your birth control podcast, but um, I was wondering if there's any specifics about that progesterone only pill that are different from the combo pill. And that's my question. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right. This is also an excellent question. So in general, these two birth controls work differently. A combination pill has a synthetic form of estrogen called ethanol estradiol, and it also includes a progesterone that you take daily. The benefit to this pill is that your body is getting some estrogen, so it's not just progesterone only. 
This is allowing most people to counter the effects of progesterone because progesterone alone, if you think about that luteal phase, can sometimes lead you to feel bloated or nauseous or more fatigued or like you're retaining water. And when you have that estrogen on board, you typically feel a little bit better. So the pill is overall better tolerated with both of them. It's also a little more efficacious when it comes to being effective in preventing ovulation and gives you a tiny bit more wiggle room. The progesterone-only pill, it is going to work by progesterone only. So it has to be taken at a very specific, like the same time exactly every single day, or you can get a breakthrough ovulation very easily. Progesterone alone does thin out the endometrial lining. That's how both pills can cause you to have fewer cramps and less bleeding. So they're both advantageous on that. But the progesterone pill overall is not quite as good at preventing ovulation. Estrogen is a much better stimulus of the brain at preventing FSH release. Now remember, FSH is follicle-stimulating hormone. That's the hormone released from the brain that causes a follicle to grow and an egg to mature and you to ovulate. Because you don't have that estrogen component, you do tend to have worse side effects with progesterone-only pills when it comes to bloating, nausea, less tolerance. However, there are some advantages. So one of these is that sometimes the combined birth control pill can decrease your milk supply. That's because of the estrogen. And so being on a progesterone-only pill or the mini pill is often what we recommend if you're breastfeeding. The other is that some people can't take estrogen because they either have estrogen-sensitive cancers They've had history of a blood clot in the past. They have really high blood pressure or history of really uncontrolled diabetes or they have migraine with an aura. Those are all risk factors for the combined birth control pill because it does increase your risk of having a blood clot a little bit because of how it's metabolized in the liver, the estrogen component, progesterone does not. So give and take. I mean, there's no right or wrong contraceptive option. You deserve a real conversation about what's best for you. I think very often people are just familiar with the pill and they don't realize there are so many different choices out there. So if you're trying to find good contraception, I promise your gynecologist would love a contraception visit where you sit down and you talk through pros and cons of different kinds and you figure out what works for you. Hi, I have a question about follicles. So I recently got an ultrasound before starting my first IVF cycle, and they found that I have 17 follicles on one side and over 20 on the other. Um, She stopped counting after a while. So my question is, I was told I don't have PCOS because my testosterone came back normal, and my AMH is normal at 2.64 and 35 years old. So why would my AMH be normal if I have so many follicles? I thought that follicles, um, the, a high number of follicles meant a high AMH, which is why a lot of people with PCOS have high AMH. So that's my question. Thanks for everything you do. All right. So this is very confusing. And I think the truth is we test both because they're different tests. AMH is a blood test, anti-malarian hormone, It is influenced by the world around us. So a very classic one is being on hormonal contraception, like the birth control pill, can actually decrease the production of AMH a little bit, but it's not actually decreasing your egg number. You just have less AMH. And if you stop the pill, then this returns to normal in about three months. The reason why is that, yes, the cells that surround each follicle make AMH. 
And so in general, the more follicles you have, you should have a higher AMH. They are correlated together. So what could be going on in this circumstance? One could be AMH does live in your bloodstream a little bit longer. So everybody's allowed to have a really weird month. So perhaps this is a weird follicle month, but AMH is a more of a reflection of three months. Another thing is when you had your AMH drawn, perhaps you were on birth control pills. And third thing could be maybe they weren't all follicles. Sometimes people have very vascular ovaries or blood vessels inside could look like follicles. Sounds like you were in trained hands because I do the same thing. Oh, I see 20 follicles. I'm going to stop counting. I also do want to say that the follicle count and just like your AMH, they can vary month to month. I have also had people who have PCOS, but it's controlled. I always think of PCOS on a spectrum where maybe you do have polycystic features on ultrasound, but you're managing your stress and eating clean and maintaining a healthy weight and otherwise inadvertently treating your PCOS so you don't have some of the other symptoms like irregular periods or high androgens. Either way, this can happen where you have an AMH value and a follicle count that are discordant. And I always tell patients, the truth probably lives somewhere in between. Every month, those numbers are going to be different. So just understand one month can be higher, one month can be lower. It's where it averages out and it's just to set a road of expectations. The good news is in neither of these scenarios are you running out of eggs. Hi, um, a question for Dr. Crawford. Had my first egg retrieval recently, retrieved 10 eggs from my right ovary, um, which I'm, I'm pleased with because I'm 38, but had six or so eggs on the left ovary that they just couldn't reach without um, damaging an organ, I think. And I'm curious if this will be a problem in all retrievals, if there's a way I can um, address this with my doctor respectfully if there's something to change in my protocol or how we uh, try to retrieve those eggs. I just don't want to leave, you know, a good portion of my eggs on the table each time. So if you have advice on that, I'd appreciate it um, before we start my next retrieval. This is such a hard scenario when you're not able to get all of the eggs. And I will tell you this, your fertility doctor, hates this also. We know that an egg retrieval is overall a very low risk, but not a no risk procedure. It is well documented in the literature that the risks include infection, bleeding, or damage to a surrounding organ or structure, such as the bladder or the intestines. We take these risks very seriously. The needle that we use is rather large in diameter and we want to make sure we know exactly where it is going. Ultrasound is helpful, but it's not perfect, and everybody's anatomy is different. Now, sometimes I have patients who have an ovary that is absolutely stuck somewhere. This is more common if you have risk factors for adhesions. So if you have a history of endometriosis, that's probably one of the top causes, or you've had fibroids removed before, or any type of abdominal surgery, if you've had an appendectomy or any intra-abdominal infections or even sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia or gonorrhea, those things can cause scar tissue inside the abdominal cavity and that can make an ovary get stuck to another place. When that happens and you're asleep, I mean, we try to push and do other things, but we cannot always get that ovary into a safe spot. So I would ask your doctor, 
Did it look stuck or was it just not accessible this time? And I would be on the lookout during the course of the monitoring for the next cycle. Is the ovary always in that spot? Is it never moving? Or did it just happen to get stuck in a bad spot that time of the retrieval? For the most part, I approach this in subsequent cycles by making decisions with the ovary in mind that I know I can get to when it comes to maturity and follicle size and letting that ovary trump my decision making. So if the other follicles are bigger on the hard to get side, I might ignore them knowing that I can only get the ones on the easy to access side. That being said, you can sometimes get to the other side also. The other thing I tell patients is sometimes your intestines, like your GI tract can make a big difference. And so really making sure that you're not constipated, that you're having regular bowel movements, maybe taking stool softeners along the process, because when you have constipation, that actually limits the space that we have for the retrieval. So that could be something you might be able to do when it comes to taking colase or a stool softener with the next cycle. But for the most part, this is not your fault. It's just part of your anatomy. And I would be asking questions of my doctor before and throughout the next one, as far as do you think you'll be able to get it? Does it look stuck? What do we think this means? And now a word from one of our sponsors, Rocket Money. Did you know that nearly 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about? Embarrassingly, I am one of those as well. And Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you that otherwise could have been a time-consuming process. Between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it can be never-ending. So Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. They monitor your spending and help you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. That's rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. Rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that 97% of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet? Ritual is essential for women 18 and plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study. I love Ritual and I love taking their essential for women 18 plus every single day. One reason I love it is that it's gentle on an empty stomach and it has a minty essence. So every bottle feels refreshing and is actually enjoyable. It's also clinically backed multivitamin with high quality and traceable key ingredients and they have industry-leading sustainability standards. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 and Over is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com A-A-W for 25% off. Hi, Dr. Crawford. Um, I love listening to your podcast. I just have a question for you um, surrounding a possible PCOS diagnosis. I have had irregular periods for a very long time. 
and I also have some signs of testosterone buildup and it's mostly coming from acne. Um, no unexplained weight gain, no really, you know, coarse hair or anything like that, um, but mostly acne. I was on granolactone for a long time before I started trying to conceive, but um, I did have an ultrasound um, where they visualized multiple follicles on my right ovary, um, but no dominant ones, and they did it on day three of my cycle, and so they assumed that I didn't ovulate um, since there weren't any dominant ones. Now, my question for you is, does it mean that I have PCOS? Um, should I start, you know, taking any sort of supplements would you recommend? Um, I already am on a prenatal and CoQ10. I didn't know about myo-inositol um, or any of those other ones, but I didn't want to start taking anything until... I knew for sure that it was confirmed PCOS. So I haven't really gotten a clear, you know, answer from my doctor at this point, so I just wanted to check in with you. But anyway, thank you so much, and I'm excited to hopefully hear my question answered. Bye. So PCOS is diagnosed by having two out of three of the following signs or symptoms, and these are called the Rotterdam criteria. Number one, irregular periods. Number two, high number of follicles seen on ultrasound, and number three, any high androgen sign symptoms or labs. So one of acne, hair growth, or a high testosterone or DHEAS value. So it definitely sounds like we meet diagnostic criteria for PCOS. Of note, on day three of an ultrasound, you actually shouldn't see a dominant follicle, so you should just see small follicles in everybody. So that ultrasound was done at an appropriate time for what we call a baseline, but that alone doesn't mean that you are not ovulating in that exact month. Although we do know that people who have PCOS have a harder, not an impossible, but have a harder time ovulating. I usually recommend that patients get an evaluation for the other things that we know happen in high association with PCOS, which is a cholesterol panel, a thyroid panel, a vitamin D and screening for insulin resistance or diabetes, which can be fasting insulin, glucose tolerance tests, or hemoglobin A1c. They're all really fine. I like to put a lot of patients on myo-inositol because it's relatively well-tolerated, but some patients actually may qualify for metformin or that may be a better choice. So that would be something to bring up to your doctor to think about, but for the most part, inositol has been shown in patients with PCOS to be well-tolerated and may help improve some of that insulin resistance and ovulation. And we do know testosterone production in the ovary is decreased if we help improve and treat that insulin resistance. So I think you're on the path to getting answers. I do think this is PCOS. And there's a lot to learn about how your body might be sensitive to the world around you and try to focus on decreasing your inflammation and really paying attention to other things. Hi, Dr. Crawford. Um, so I am a 33-year-old female, been trying to conceive for over a year. My AMH is 0.55. Antral follicle count is typically around 4 to 5. My first cycle of IVF was canceled due to asynchronized growth um, on a high-dose uh, stem cycle. My second cycle, I was primed with Lupron um, in the mid-luteal phase. I was giving myself 10 units of Lupron nightly. 
And unfortunately, I suffered the same bout of a large lead follicle, which um, is where I'm at now. So my question is, for diminished ovarian reserve patients who are prone to getting a lead follicle, how would you go about adjusting their uh, protocol? Would you recommend trying Lupron priming again versus estrogen versus birth control versus no priming? Thanks so much. I really enjoy your podcast. Bye. Y'all, these questions are so excellent. Let me say this. When you have low ovarian reserve and you are doing IVF, canceled cycles are part of the process. I know it is frustrating, expensive, and time-consuming. I also know it makes you doubt yourself and your body. But let me just tell you, everybody is so unique. And when you have fewer eggs, the body is still trying to revert back to what it wants to do. Meaning, the body wants to ovulate one follicle no matter how many you have. And when you have fewer eggs total, the body is more stubborn. That's how I always explain it to patients. Sometimes it is bad, just a bad month. This is not your best month. Sometimes it is truly, this is not the protocol for you. And really there is some trial and error. And I know nobody loves to hear that. When I counsel patients, here's what I think about for a low ovarian response patient. I do not like no priming at all. Absolutely not. The ovary is too stubborn. I really find asynchrony when that happens. Options for priming. One is estrogen in the luteal phase. That can sometimes work nicely. Another is birth control pills. Another is birth control pills overlapping with Lupron. Another is luteal Lupron. Another can be testosterone or even progesterone or ovulation blockers. So there are these different combinations. I really like a luteal Lupron sometimes, but a lead follicle could mean, one, the dose of the Lupron was too low, or two, maybe that's just not it for you. So if you haven't tried estrogen-based protocol or even an overlap protocol, that could sometimes be a really good option. It is hard, and I'm just sending love because this is probably one of the most frustrating things. It does not mean you need to go and give up. I have had patients who had their cycle canceled two or three times. Then we found a protocol that worked for them, and we were able to go and get four to six eggs every time from there on out. So it's all about having a doctor that is paying attention to what your body is doing. And I am so happy for you that you're at a clinic that it sounds like is actually paying attention and not just pushing the cycle through. Sounds like canceling out the cycle was the absolute right thing. And I love when patients have a WTF appointment with me after some cycles, especially if two have gotten canceled in a row, just so we can regroup, make sure all your questions are answered and that we all feel really good about the next plan. But the take-home message is, this is not your fault. This is a part of the process and do not give up hope. All right. A reminder that each week we usually answer some of the questions that you ask on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD for for fertility sake FFS. This week I'm just going to answer a few more of your voicemails and we are going to do episodes where I answer these voicemail questions every now and then. Really, the more we get, the more frequent we'll do it. The voicemail, if you would like to call and leave your question, 657. 229-3672-657-229-3672. And again, you can also ask a question, which I will read if you want to be less vocal, and that's okay, on Instagram on Monday at Natalie Crawford MD. 
um, my question is, if you have a patient with mild bilateral hydrosalpinx, do you ever not recommend surgical removal? Thank you. A hydrosalpinx is a dilated fallopian tube. This can happen for a variety of reasons. Usually it is from infection, inflammation, or endometriosis, or prior surgery. When you get a dilated fallopian tube that is communicating to the uterus, which means connecting, it can lead to toxic fluid accumulating in the uterus. And we know from IVF studies that this can impact IVF success rate significantly and decrease the chance of implantation by 50%. Therefore, mild, severe, no matter what, if there is a hydrosalpinx detected, I do recommend removal before we get to the embryo transfer stage. And because not all hydrosalpinx are seen on ultrasound well, this is why I recommend a tubal evaluation to all patients before they have an embryo transfer. So that can either be with a bubble test or a FemView or an HSG or a surgery. But I think that should be part of the workup to make sure we're not missing this crucial thing that can decrease success. Hi, Dr. Crawford. This is Sophia. I have loved listening to your podcast over the last year. Um, my partner and I have been trying to conceive for 10 months with no positives. Um, a 29-year-old female with regular 28 to 31 day cycles. Um, I found out that I'm a carrier for cystic fibrosis um, and just have a history of inflammation, um, kind of un undiagnosed. Um, my partner was tested. He's not a carrier of cystic fibrosis. Um, we just did a semen analysis, which came back normal, 5.5 milliliter sample, 108 million per milliliter, 72% mortality, normal morphology. Um, so my question to you is we're on the borderline of being considered um, in the infertility realm. Um, what would your suggestion be for a couple like us? Um, we kind of feel like we're just sitting around waiting um, to get to that 12-month mark. Um, and just don't really know quite what to do from here because it seems like by now we should be pregnant. So um, thanks so much for all your advice and all the free resources and information that you're giving out. Um, and hopefully you can help answer my questions. Thanks. All right. This definitely sounds like unexplained infertility. The one thing I didn't hear is if we had a test to check our fallopian tubes. So if you have not, that would be one other thing to add to the list. But unexplained infertility is when you have normal anatomy, normal periods, normal sperm, and you're still not getting pregnant. Although official infertility diagnosis occurs at 12 months when you're under age 35, the vast majority of people who are going to conceive in that interval do so in the first six months of trying. Therefore, when you start to fall to these outer months, I do not feel like it is mandatory to make you just wait until 12 months to get treatment. Things that we do for unexplained infertility, typically there's two. One is to improve the odds of getting pregnant by just getting more eggs and sperm together. So if your fallopian tubes are open, we do this with a combination of ovulation induction for super ovulation, medications like Clomid or Letrozole, and we combine that with IUI or intrauterine insemination to get the sperm closer to where it needs to be. Now, granted, if there is underlying fertilization issues, that may not happen. So we can see issues with fertilization even when the semen analysis looks normal. 
it may not always be the sperm's fault. It could be the egg, the sperm, the environment. There's so much we don't know about unexplained infertility. But IVF is the other treatment option because it does treat all of those different factors. You get more than one egg. You take them out of the body so you change the environment. You can put a sperm inside of an egg so you can make sure that fertilization is happening. You can do genetic testing in case there's a higher prevalence of genetic abnormalities or bad egg or sperm quality. So it really is just a more efficient way to get pregnant. And the only thing that ever exceeds natural conception when it comes to success. So I would have an honest talk with your doctor about what is going on. It might be time to accelerate. If you go down the IUI road, most people don't do more than three of them before moving on to an IVF cycle. But I've had people do more. It really just depends on your goals and what all makes the most sense for you. So certainly while you're in the waiting time, I would try to schedule that appointment. And whether you do treatment right away or just soon, I would want to know exactly what your game plan is next. You guys, I just love answering these questions so much. And thank you for your kind words for this podcast. Sometimes I am just recording it in my closet. And I wonder if anybody's on the other side and hearing all of your kind words and hearing your questions is such motivation to just keep the As A Woman podcast growing and growing. Again, thank you so much for spending your time calling in. If you want to call and leave questions in the future, 657-229-3672. Thank you, friends. Thank you all for listening to As A Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.